Election College, Episode 89, Eugene Debs, the man who ran for president from jail. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, it takes a lot of guts and courage just to throw your name in the ring for, you know, the election process. It takes even more guts to do it five times, and one of those times from prison. I I agree. That's pretty <laughs> <Or> crazy. Is, <laughs> it, is it guts or is it insanity? I don't know, but that's one of the two for sure. Yeah, I guess we'll get into it here with Eugene Victor Debs. We're going to call him Gene, though. Sure. I like that. It, Eugene or Gene was born in Indiana, and his parents were actually uh, immigrants from France. Um, his father came from a pretty well-to-do family, and um, growing up, Gene's parents uh, owned a textile mill and also a meat market. So kind of, I guess they're diversifying their income. He was named after some French authors, so that's nice. And he attended public school. He drops out at age 14, gets a job with the Vandalia Railroad. Uh, he's cleaning grease from the trucks of freight engines, and he gets 50 cents a day. Which in you know mid-1800s is not a bad wage at all. Uh, he later gets bumped up to doing a few more things. He does some painting and uh, does some more cleaning in the railroad shops until one day a fireman who... Was, not someone who fights fires, but someone who feeds the trains fuel so that they can keep chugging along. Ah, that's what a fireman is. Yeah, yeah. So there's a fireman who gets drunk, and he's drunk, and he can't work, and he doesn't come to work in general. So they're like, hey, Gene, uh, you're a fireman now. And he's like, all right. Cool, <laughs> but not that so kind he, of fireman. Not that fireman. kind of fireman. Take take that silly outfit off. Uh, <laughs> not and that so he actually outfits are silly, right? Of course not. But it would be silly to wear one if you were a locomotive fireman or something like that. Uh, yeah. And so he actually remains as a fireman and starts earning more than a dollar a day, which is, like I said, a good bit of money. Yeah, so he does that for three and a half years. He leaves that job to work at a wholesale grocery house. He works there for four years and goes to business school. In uh, 1875, Debs actually joined the BLF, which is the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. And he gets pretty active in the organization, starts taking up some different positions and everything. He eventually becomes the editor for the Fireman's Magazine, and then later the Grand Secretary and Treasurer <laughs> of the BLF. So needless to say, he's a pretty trusted guy and kind of a you know a go-getter, at least as far as these organizations are concerned. 
Yeah, and all during this time, he's becoming a prominent figure in the community. He serves two terms as the Terre Haute City Clerk. He does that from September of 1879 to September of 1883. And in the fall of 1884, he was elected to the Indiana General Assembly as a Democrat, where he served for one term. Right after that, he gets married to his wife, Kate Metzel, in 1885, and they live happily ever after, or something like that. Yeah, and you can visit their house. It's on the campus of Indiana State University. I think that's the Sycamores. That's where Larry Bird went. Yeah, I'll go with that. I don't know. (laughs) I, I said that very confidently. If anybody wants to correct me, then go ahead. Go for it. Yeah. What you need to know about the the railroad unions, or I guess they weren't really called unions yet, but the brotherhoods, was that they were pretty conservative. And mostly the, they were just around to kind of provide some friendship, fellowship, um, some different services for the union members, or I guess the brotherhood members. And they didn't really focus on collective bargaining, which is what we know unions to be known for pretty well today. One thing that he was really involved in was the Burlington Railroad Strike of 1888. And that was a defeat for labor that really convinced Debs of the necessity of organizing along craft lines. Yeah, so 1893 rolls along. Uh, He's like, hey, you know the Grand Secretary thing I've been doing for the Brotherhood? I'm going to go ahead and and stop doing that. And actually, you know, instead of just taking it easy, I'm going to start an industrial union, the American Railway Union, which is, I think, the first or one of the first industrial unions that uh, the United States had. And basically, it's a union for unskilled workers. And they strike the Great Northern Railway in April 1894, and they actually end up winning uh, most of their demands. Yeah, so there's a pretty big strike that comes after that. It was the Pullman strike. And that is going to sound very familiar to a lot of us, the Pullman Palace Car Company. Well, Debs becomes involved in the strike. And that grew out of a compensation dispute, which started by the workers who constructed the train cars that were made by the Pullman Company. And the Pullman Company was like, hey, guys, Our revenues are falling, especially after the Panic of 1893. They cut the wages of their employees by 28%. Ouch. Yeah, so the the workers, most of them are actually members of the American Railway Union. And at their convention in Chicago that year, they're like, help, help. Uh, Debs tries to persuade them. Listen, if we boycott, it's really risky. Things aren't going to go real well. The railways are already hostile towards us. The government is hostile towards us. Our union is new and it's weak. There's other unions that would go ahead and break the strike and walk through the line. This is this is risky. You guys should not do this. Yeah, it's really risky. And the membership is like, you know what? We're going to strike. And they refused to handle Pullman cars or any other railroad cars attached to them. And this includes the U.S. mail. So this is a pretty big deal. And the strike just expands. It doubles its size to 80,000 workers. 
and Debs relents. He decides to take part in the strike. It's endorsed by almost all the members of the ARU in the immediate area of Chicago. And in 1894, a New York Times editorial called Debs, quote, a lawbreaker at large, an enemy of the human race. Man, that's kind of harsh. It's like the dude didn't even want to be a part of it at first, and now all of a sudden he's an enemy of the human race. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah, so the strikers fought. Uh, They established boycotts of Pullman train cars, and Debs eventually leads the group. The strike became known as the Debs Rebellion. Or I should say Debs Rebellion. Huh. I'd like to have a rebellion named after me. Yeah, the the Ben Rebellion. Uh-huh. Okay, so here's the deal. When you interrupt the U.S. mail, even back in the uh, 1890s, the feds don't like that a lot. So the no. federal government intervenes. They get an injunction against the strike. And um, they're like, hey, you've obstructed U.S. mail. You've obstructed it because it's being carried on Pullman cars. You don't show up for work. When you do show up, you're not working. You're not handling these cars. Uh, So stop it. And Grover Cleveland, who's the president at the time, says, all right, here comes the army. Yeah. So here comes the army, all right. It breaks the strike. And 30 strikers were killed. Uh, 13 of them were from Chicago and thousands were blacklisted. And get this, an estimated $80 million worth of property was damaged. And Debs was found guilty of contempt of court for violating the injunction, and he was thrown into federal prison. So remember when we said about a dollar a day being a pretty good wage? Well, imagine how much stuff had to get destroyed for there to be $80 million worth of property damage. A lot of stuff, for sure. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because Debs, uh, when he went to court, was actually represented by Clarence Darrow, who is a very famous lawyer and civil libertarian. And um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because he used to be a corporate lawyer for the railroad company. (laughs) And people were like, hey, Darrow switched sides to represent Debs. And that was later repeated by Irving Stone, who wrote a biography about Clarence Darrow. It was called Clarence Darrow for the Defense. I have not read that book, but that would probably be interesting because... He was in some pretty high-profile cases. Yeah, for sure. It goes to the Supreme Court, and the government is actually uh, upheld in their decision to issue the injunction and to uphold it. And so Debs essentially loses that. But at the time when Debs was, I'm sorry, I guess we're calling him Gene. I keep forgetting. Yeah. Uh, at At the time when he was arrested for this obstruction of the mail and you know, being the ringleader, even though he wasn't technically the ringleader, he kind of wasn't like full out socialist yet. And um, he starts getting a bunch of mail and letters and books from socialists all around the country while he is in jail. And like later on, he says, I started to read and think and dissect the anatomy of the system in which working men, however they're organized, could be shattered and battered and splintered, splintered at a single stroke. So he's really starting to uh, come around to the idea that yeah, these um, unions are good because the average person, the average working man, 
isn't able to stand up for himself. And this kind of starts him on his socialist journey, at least in name. Yeah. And like Ben, you were just quoting some of what he was saying. It almost sounds like he's a preacher or an evangelist for the socialist cause. And you're going to see this pop up over and over again throughout his speeches and his writings and so on that he's he, he I'm going to label him this and somebody might have already labeled him this way but he really becomes the socialistic evangelist in this period of history so there he is he's in jail and a newspaper editor named Victor Berger comes and is like here you are buddy I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to pass on the socialistic message to you and you are going to join my side. You're going to read all of this literature and you are going to leave prison and be a proselytizing socialist guy. <laughs> <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And that is exactly what happens. He leaves prison. He starts out on his socialist journey. Uh, he got the American Railway Union membership to join with the Brotherhood of the Cooperative Commonwealth. And they actually end up founding the Social Democracy of America. And really, Debs and Martin Elliott are the first candidates for the Socialist Party. They run for the presidency and Congress in 1900. And uh, Debs actually gets 0.6% of the popular vote, which is about 87, 88,000 votes uh, at that point in time, which is not much. But for a brand new party that has basically uh, no, no precedent set for it, that's a lot of votes. Yeah, that is a lot of votes. And all the while on the home front, Gene's wife, Kate, was like, um, dude, this is not cool with me. And his biographer, Irving Stone, said that the, quote, tempestuous relationship with a wife who rejects the very value he or the very values that he holds most dear. And that was the basis of Stone's biographical novel, Adversary in the House. So you can imagine what conversations were like at the dinner table, um, if there was even a conversation to be had. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk about politics. <laughs> exactly. One year later, the uh, the group splits up, and Gene actually goes with the group who went to the majority, and they found the Social Democratic Party of the United States and, um, you know, social democratic party for short. Gene gets elected chairman. He just can't stay out of these positions and, uh, he starts governing the actual party, but they didn't have a single person who kind of called the shots. So uh, that makes sense for a socialist party, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
Deb actually gets a lot of notoriety, though, and, and he kind of becomes a figurehead for the party. Yeah, he was actually the Socialist Party of America's presidential candidate in 1904, 1908, 1912, and 1920. And in 1904, he gets almost 403,000 votes, which was almost 3% of the popular vote. Yeah, so not enough to get any electoral votes, but he does finish third overall, which, again, is surprising and impressive. In 1908, things get... uh, He's about the same. He's got more popular votes, but less of the uh, overall votes. And then we keep on rolling into 1912, where Debs actually gets 5.99% of the popular vote. That's a lot of votes for a third party. I guess you could say third party candidate. Yeah. Even now, that's a lot of votes. Right. I think most third parties are pretty happy if they get over 1% of the popular vote. Yeah. So his total in 1920 is very crazy when you consider that he was in prison mm-hmm. because he gets 913,000 votes in 1920. And that is the all-time high for a Socialist Party candidate. Debs is like, okay, I'm running for president, and uh, I'm third-party candidate, but I'm still doing really well. And I also still kind of hate the electoral process. I kind of <laughs> hate our the way of doing things here in America, which I guess makes sense for a third-party candidate. That's usually the reason you're a third-party candidate, if you've got a, a beef with the system. And so he's still kind of down on things. And he's way more into starting at the bottom, the grassroots, organizing workers, making unions, founding things that are going to affect people on a day-to-day basis. Right. You want to talk a little bit about his charisma and his leadership style? He was really known to be really charismatic, wasn't he? Yeah. And we mentioned earlier how he sounded a lot like an evangelist. And he would actually use Christian words. And his uh, style of speaking was very much of an evangelist, even though he was like, uh, I hate religion. Yeah, And it was said that he was what every socialist and radical should be, fierce in his convictions, but kind and compassionate in his personal relations. Yeah. And they actually start calling him King Debs. And Gene is like, I'm not so sure about this. He actually is quoted in 1906 as saying, I am not a labor leader. I don't want you to follow. And I'm going to read this whole quote because I think it's a pretty important one for him. I'm not a labor, labor leader. I don't want you to follow me or anyone else. If you're looking for a Moses to lead you out of this capitalist wilderness, you will stay right where you are. I would not lead you into the promised land if I could, because if I led you in, someone else would lead you out. You have to use your head as well as your hands and get yourself out of your present condition. So very much you need to, this needs to be a grassroots effort, an individual effort. You don't need a savior because if you have a savior, you'll easily follow. Then you'll have someone detrimental. You'll easily follow. Yeah. So Gene is not really a fan of the government. (laughs) He's not a fan (laughs) of the way the U.S. political system and 
anything having to do with the way things have always been. He's just not for it. So he gives this speech in 1918 in Canton, Ohio. And he says, listen, guys, listen, people of the United States, the military draft with World War I going on, that's wrong. And President Wilson calls Debs a traitor to his country. So he was arrested on June 30th, 1918, and he was charged with 10 counts of sedition. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, during the trial, the defense called no witnesses, and they actually asked if Gene can be allowed to address the court. And they granted it, which was very unusual. And then Gene's like, all right, I'm going to talk for two hours. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and then I, he got found guilty. Uh, I think they probably found him guilty just because he, ma- he made them listen to him for two hours. It was probably right. the biggest reason. Uh, I, I might find he, you guilty for that. Yeah. He got found guilty on September 12th. And it's not like today where you get found guilty and then it's like, all right, in six months, you'll come back for sentencing. It was like, how about uh, two days from now, uh, we sentence you. How's that going to work for you, Gene? Yeah. So he talks to the court again. Sounds like he's all about that. And he gives this speech and Haywood Braun, uh, he was a liberal journalist and not really a Debs partisan. But he says that it was one of the most beautiful and moving passages in the English language. He was for that one afternoon touched with inspiration. If anyone told me that the tongues of fire danced upon his shoulders as he spoke, I would believe it. So, again, he's speaking with passion. He's speaking with purpose. And they throw him in jail. (laughs) (laughs) And not only is he in jail for 10 years, people just don't like him for the rest of his life. He's disenfranchised. Uh, He is best known for the fact that he went to jail, uh, really not for all the things that he did for the working man. And so Debs actually appeals his conviction to the Supreme Court. He, of course, loses. Uh, He went to prison in 1919, and there were lots of protests and parades of unionists and socialists and anarchists and communists in Cleveland, and it actually broke out into a riot, which is exactly what you don't want to happen if you're Eugene Debs. Right. So there he is. He's in jail. And 1920 comes around. There's a presidential election. Debs is hanging out in Atlanta at the Federal Pen. And he gets 919,799 votes. That's a lot of votes. It is a lot of votes. Especially for a guy in prison. Yeah. And he's writing all kinds of columns that are deeply critical of the prison system. And they were sanitized a bit and they were published in the Bell Syndicate. And it actually became his only book called Walls and Bars. That it wasn't published until after he died. Right. Posthumously, Ben. Posthumously. Posthumously. I like it. When uh, Debs actually got released from prison, he was like sent off with a, a bunch of cheers and 50,000 people gather to greet him back to his home. And they have a band and everything else. Uh, he gets greeted at the White House by President Harding, who... Um, 
<laughs> says he's glad to meet him. Uh, he gets nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and then he spends his few years left trying to recover from all the not bad treatment, but just not up to par treatment in prison. It's not like he was treated poorly. It's just that he was, you know, there were less than stellar conditions. And they actually take him and admit him to a sanitarium where he dies from heart failure at the age of 70. Yeah, it's kind of interesting during those last days because President Wilson's Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, was actually saying, you know what, maybe we should pardon the guy. Maybe we should get him out of prison. But it wasn't until the Republican Harding communed Debs' sentence. So even in the Wilson administration, there wasn't agreement whether he should be in prison or not. Pretty crazy. When he did get his sentence commuted, uh, he wasn't issued a pardon, which those are two very different things. Um, everybody's like, yeah, well, I mean, he's guilty. He actually did. He, he admits to doing what he said he did. He just thinks it shouldn't be illegal. Or what we said he did. He just thinks it shouldn't be illegal. But they were like, eh, maybe he doesn't need to serve so much time. Yeah. So he does have a pretty mixed legacy. If you are a capitalist, you probably don't like Eugene V. Debs. If you're a socialist, you're probably thinking, hey, this guy was a pioneer. He did a lot of cool things. He persevered. He spoke up for what he believed in. And um, yeah, interesting legacy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let us know if you like this episode, spotlighting one particular candidate who did not end up being the president. And we, we wanted to highlight him because of how many times he ran for the presidency and because he was also a third-party candidate. So both of those things are things that we didn't focus on tremendously during the election series. But let us know if you like it and you want us to keep doing more things like it. Yeah, and we covet, and I mean that in the most sincere way, we really need your reviews. So if you would take 90 seconds out of your valuable time, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It helps us get this program in front of more awesome people just like you. And the best way to grow our show is for you to tell your friends personally about us. Post on Facebook, send a message out on Twitter, or even just face-to-face, good old-fashioned way, uh, tell someone, hey, you should listen to Election College. That's the best way to get the word out there. And I know I always take the suggestions of my friends more seriously than I do ads or just clicking around on stuff. So that would really help us out if you told one person this week about Election College. Yeah, we like to think of us as a respite from that crazy current political scene. All right, Jason, I think that's all I have to say about good old Gene. How about you? Yep. We'll let Gene be Gene and socialism be socialism. (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) See ya. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.